Hi there, it's episode 198, and today I'm sharing a very special story with you. I'm joined by my dear friend Jen, who I met on Craigslist about 12 years ago, and she's giving us an intimate look inside of her parenting journey. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, and thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to bring you this story today. Next week, we're getting ready to launch the Mental Unload. The Mental Unload is a seven-day program geared at tackling your mental clutter. Many of us, maybe most of us, struggle with the mental load of motherhood. If you want to join us on this journey to jumpstart your self-care, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash unload. You'll get all the information and how to sign up there. I generally run this program three times a year, and each time I run it, I try to focus at least one or two podcast episodes on the topic of the mental load. And this time I was trying to brainstorm who would be a good guest, who would bring some new insightful perspective on the mental load. And that's when I thought of my friend Jen, who I've been more or less out of touch with for the past 10 years, but she's one of those friends that it doesn't matter how much time passes, you can pick up right where you left off. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about how I met Jen and got to know her and more about her story. But first, here's a quick word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Cultural Care. Cultural Care is an au pair agency, which is an agency that links you with au pairs. If you're not familiar with what an au pair is, an au pair is a young adult from overseas who comes to live with you and your family on a legal visa for up to two years. They provide childcare in exchange for a room and board and the opportunity to become part of an American family. And I will say that our au pairs have truly become part of our family. We've been participating in the au pair program for the past two years. And this type of flexible childcare arrangement has been amazing for our family. Not only has it been such a lovely and enriching experience for our family, but having an au pair in our area costs about half of what a nanny costs. Au pairs can provide up to 45 hours a week of flexible childcare. That means if you want to use your hours early in the morning, late at night, on the weekend, there's a lot of room to change it up to fit the needs of your family. As a host family, we pay a weekly stipend along with room and board and $500 a year towards college credits, which is required as a part of the program. If you want to learn more about the program, you can always reach out to me directly to ask me questions. I love talking about our experience. Or you can go to simplefamilies.com forward slash au pair. That's A-U-P-A-I-R. Again, that's simplefamilies.com forward slash au pair. And the code PCSIMPLE will let you waive the $75 registration fee. If you're thinking ahead to summer child care, now is a great time to start looking into this. All right, back to today's episode. So I met Jen back in 2007. And at the time, I was in my early 20s. I had just finished my master's degree in social work. I was working full time on my LCSW, my clinical licensure, as a therapist, a child and family therapist. So the reputation for social workers being a highly underpaid profession is true. And as a result, I was looking for a part-time job to supplement my full-time income. At the time, I was young and single and living alone. 
So I got on Craigslist and I searched therapist because that was my job at that time. And I thought maybe I could find an additional part-time job doing therapy. And Craigslist was where you went, where you were, when you were looking for that kind of job back in 2007, I guess to some degree, probably still today. And I found a link that said ABA therapist. And I had no idea what that was. I knew that it was some kind of therapy for young children. So I emailed and I got a response from Jen and she said, yes, we want to interview you. So I went to her house and I met with her and her husband and her then almost two-year-old son. And when I arrived, she explained to me that he was nonverbal and they were starting an intensive intervention program called ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis. I would be one of just many therapists that he would be working with in this program about five hours a week. In total, he had more than 40 hours a week of therapy at the age of two, which is typical of an ABA program. For anyone not familiar with applied behavior analysis, it's a type of therapy that works to improve social communication and generalized learning skills. It often starts in early childhood. Many experts consider ABA the gold standard for treatment with autism and other kinds of developmental disorders. So the kid was cute and I needed the money, so I said, sign me up. Little did I know that I would come to fall in love with that little boy and Jen and her husband would become more than employers to me. They would become friends. I felt like I had a front row seat watching Jen work through her motherhood journey in these early years. And if I had to use one word to describe her, it would be tenacious. I remember watching her and thinking, this is exactly how I want to be as a mom. I want to be that dedicated and that loyal and that immersed in the experience. I remember her coming and leading all of our team meetings with the other therapists. She would have her head down vigorously taking notes and she would execute every single thing that the consultant told her to do to a T. Back when I was 23 years old, I was inspired by seeing how hard she was working as a mother. But now that I'm 36 and I have two kids of my own, I can't help but thinking, what was this really like for her to go through this experience? Because as a mother, I have my hands full as it is. And now viewing her experience from a different mindset as a mother, I think about it less aspirationally and more from an exhausted point of view, because gosh, how exhausting that must have been. I thought to myself how mentally, emotionally, and physically draining that must have been. So I wanted her to join me to share her story, to give an inside look on what life looks like raising a child with special needs and then raising twins on top of that. I know that so many families out there listening are also raising special needs children and you all have a very beautiful, unique journey of your own. And if you're not raising a special needs child, you surely know someone who is. And I think hearing the inner intimate experience of someone who's been through this journey will help bring you empathy. Because Jen's kids are getting older, we've agreed that it's in everyone's best interest to stay relatively anonymous. So if you have questions or comments or feedback for Jen, email those to me, danae at simplefamilies.com, and I'll make sure to pass those along to her. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Jen. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. It's just so good to catch up with you. We really haven't talked much over the past, gosh, about 10 years. I know. It's been so nice to reconnect with you. You are so important to us always. Oh, well, you and your family hold such a near and dear place in my heart. And I'm so happy to have you tell your story today. I think that bits and pieces are going to resonate with so many people listening. 
Well, I, I hope that is the case, whatever I can do to help someone else. So tell me about you a little bit. Who are you? How old are your kids? What do you do? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> so I have three children, a 14 year old son and twin 11 year old daughters. And I am a lawyer. Well, I sort of a recovering lawyer. I'm now a college professor. Um, but I practiced law for many years until our son was about two. And at that point, uh, when his challenges became more apparent, I took a leave of absence and ultimately resigned from my law firm job so I could devote uh, my time to trying to meet his needs at home. Um, and then in the last about six years, I've gone back to work teaching and I've absolutely loved it. And so here I am. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Now, I want to rewind and talk a little bit about your earliest days of motherhood, really, I guess, pregnancy. And when I knew you, I, we, I met you when your son was just turning two. So I didn't know you throughout these early years and never really asked these questions. So I feel like I'm hearing a lot of this for the first time too. So how would you say your experience during your first pregnancy was? What did you anticipate in motherhood? I had no idea what I was in for, quite frankly. Like, I guess all first-time mothers, right? I, I sort of expected, I idealized, I think, much of what the experience would be like. I anticipated, I mean, it sounds sort of obnoxious to say in retrospect, but um, I've evolved since, but I was thinking, oh, like, which which prestigious schools will he go to? You know, I, I sort of assumed he would be everything I, you know, had dreamed about with all the promise and skill set and abilities in the world and that the, the world was his. So that was always my hope and what I sort of expected going in. And you were in your late 20s, right? I was 28 when I had him. Okay. And you and your husband are both Ivy League grads. And yeah. it's, I would, I would venture to say that most people who have achieved a lot in their careers and in their academic life that they would expect that of their future children too. I don't think that's unusual. It's, you know, it's, I, I just hadn't contemplated anything else. And it sounds, as I said, terrible. It sounds obnoxious. All I can say is it wasn't with any bad intent or bad feeling. It was just completely oblivious to the realities of the world. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, it's humbling to be a parent for sure. <laughs> it is. It is. Absolutely. So he was born and what time of the year was he born? In um, the fall. In the fall. Okay. Mm -hmm. So how was your experience in those first weeks and months throughout the holiday season? To be honest, it was brutal. I had a very hard time adjusting. I remember feeling incredibly challenged by the sleep deprivation. I remember um, a couple weeks after he had been born, my parents came over for dinner. They live locally as well, which has been a tremendous blessing. And my father looked at me and said, you know, I think he may have colic. And I started to cry, no doubt, par you know, partially because of the hormones and the exhaustion. And I was just very emotional at that time. But I was thinking, 
if he has colic, that is the worst thing in the world because it means he's going to be screaming for hours a day for the next few weeks. And I don't know how I'm going to get through the days. So I felt overwhelmed from day one. Looking back, I would assume I had at least some element of postpartum depression that I never treated. I didn't really put it all together at the time, but I, I struggled and I never, I felt anxious and not totally natural. Um, and he was difficult. He cried a lot. I think he was in sort of a state of sensory overload much of the time. So we were constantly worrying about overstimulating him because it set him off. It just didn't feel quite right to me. So did he continue to cry past the typical age of kids with colic? Well, it's interesting. He definitely had colic. So, you know, after the six week peak of, you know, of colic, I think some of that died down. But I remember he cried very easily over new experiences. I remember, I don't know if this is too late in the chronology for you, if you want to stick with earlier, but I remember at his one-year checkup, the doctor asked me if I had ever given him a crayon to scribble with, and I said no. She said, well, get him a crayon. He needs to scribble. So he and I went to buy crayons right after the appointment because we didn't have any. He was our first child. We didn't really use crayons. Yeah. Um, and I gave him a crayon, and I was so excited to see you know, the artwork he would produce. And he took a look at the crayon and screamed and was completely overwhelmed by it. And I'll just never forget it. And I just put the crayon away. I didn't want to freak him out again. Would you say that was the first point when you really started to get nervous or did you already have feelings? Yeah, I was nervous before then because he didn't have any consonant sounds. You know, there are all these milestones they're supposed to meet. So he didn't have consonant sounds at eight months and they sent us for a hearing test. And I knew in my heart it wasn't a hearing issue. Um, But I remember going to the hearing test praying that it would turn out bad so that that's what would explain his um, lack of sounds. And of course, his hearing was fine. So I knew there were little things along the way. Um, At one year, he wasn't pointing And so as time went on and the gap sort of widened between what he was doing and what his neurotypical peers were doing, we got more and more concerned. What was your pediatrician telling you at that point? Well, I remember at his 15-month appointment, our pediatrician said, okay, you know, he has until 18 months, sorry, um, to have five words. And if he doesn't have five words by 18 months, you're going to speech therapy. So I was working so hard with him, trying to get him to repeat. And of course, not not a word by 18 months, actually not a consonant sound by then. So um, then we were sent to speech starting at 18 months. So I think it's interesting that you said you were working hard with him because that's my early memories of you is being the most tenacious, hardworking (laughs) mom that I've ever met. And I can envision you saying, let's do this, right? You, you need to learn these and sitting down and trying to teach him. And when you couldn't do that, it must have felt, I don't know, how did it feel? It felt um, hopeless and horrible. And I felt like a failure. And I didn't understand what was going on. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. 
Did you blame yourself? So it's interesting. I've spent considerable time thinking about this. I was smart enough, I think, to know that his challenges themselves were not my fault. I can't, you know, parents of special needs children can't blame themselves for their children's special needs. That just defies any sort of rational thinking or logic. But what I blamed myself for was how little I was enjoying him. I felt that I was a terrible mother because I wasn't having fun with him. I found him really hard to be with. And I loved him with every ounce of my being And I was there to comfort him and to love him and to hold him and to sing to him and read to him. But I couldn't play with him. So I couldn't have like fun time with him. And when we were together, a lot of it, frankly, was sort of waiting for time to pass by and waiting for bedtime. And I I blamed myself for feeling that way. Is that something that you ever were able to share with your husband or anyone else in those early years? My husband was very similar minded. (laughs) So I've always been very safe with him. He and I have really shared all of this from pretty much day one. We both were sort of shell-shocked by how hard parenting was. And remember, this was our first child. So we never had sort of if, if a normal parenting experience even exists, we never had it. I don't know that it exists, actually. But um, we never had an easy time being parents because from day one of being parents, we were met with our son and all of his challenges. And it really was very difficult. So that first year was just probably a very confusing time. At what point did you start? Was it 18 months when you decided to seek out other types of professionals for opinions? Well, so at that point, we did speech, we did OT, he made virtually no progress. And I was really starting to panic then. So at that point, I remember I, I was still working for my law firm at the time. And I remember going to work one day and breaking down to my my boss, um, who I was very friendly with. And I said to him, our son has these developmental delays and I'm freaking out and think I need to take a leave of absence and I don't know what to do. And he said, first of all, you take whatever time you need, but second of all, you need to call my friend. Here is her name and number. She has a child with autism and she put together this home-based program for him that changed their lives. So if you do nothing else, just please call her And whatever she can, you know, impart to you would be great. And I thanked him. And although I was very private about all of this and somewhat isolating myself a little bit from my peers, because I just felt that no one could understand what we were going through. And I I still valued my son's privacy so much, um, so didn't feel comfortable sharing. I called this woman and she met me at a Starbucks for over an hour and told me about ABA and shared with me her consultant's contact information and offered to help me set up 
our house for this program. She was phenomenal. Just an amazing, kind, generous woman. So did you jump right in? Because tell us a little bit about ABA. This is not like one hour a week, <laughs> drop a kid off at therapy, right? Yeah, no, this is very intense. And it's funny, This I'm normally someone who researches things pretty thoroughly and tries to go in with eyes wide open. This was the most impulsive decision I have ever made. I spoke with her, I called the consultant, I set up the initial meeting and never looked back. And I remember I sat my husband and parents down that night and I said, listen, I just want to let you know, this is what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, I, I said, I'm not really open to uh, any like criticism of this. This is what worked for this woman's son. This is what we're going to do. It's the most intensive program available. There is no time to waste. And once a week speech just isn't cutting it. Um, So here's what we're doing. And we're all in this together. (laughs) As I was dictating to them. (laughs) Yeah. What would be happening. Um, And I think they all know me well enough. They knew that it was not the time to question me. So I, I really just went in knowing very little, but trusting it completely. Totally bizarre. So from that point that you met the woman in the Starbucks to the time you got your ABA program going, how much time passed? Oh, very little. I mean, maybe, maybe two months like almost nothing. I mean, we were on it. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I met with a consultant. She gave me a list of everything I had to buy. She actually went to Toys R Us with me, the consultant, and loaded the cart. I think we had two carts full. I mean, you you may remember. Our yeah, house. Every, absolutely. Every stupid thing in the universe, you know, to help our kid. <laughs> so, right. Um, as any of us would. Yes. I remember spending an ungodly amount of money in Toys R Us and, you know, it felt good because it felt like something within my control that I could do. So I threw myself in to doing all the things I could to help him. So that meant hiring this consultant, which of course I did hiring instructors and setting up the um, ABA room in our house and doing all of the payroll and scheduling. And um, at that point, I took a leave of absence from my job and devoted myself entirely to managing this program. It was very intense. I guess we started when he was two. I think he had just turned two. And we were doing 42 hours a week. It was insane. I mean, other than sleeping and eating, he was an ABA. So that was about, was it like four hours in the morning, four hours in the afternoon or? Generally, the okay. girl, I remember you had the shortest sessions because you had to go to your real job yeah. after. <laughs> so I still remember you came on Tuesday and Thursday mornings and yeah. sometimes could stay till 11, but sometimes you had to leave by 1030. So I remember um, those were the earliest ones. So you did two or two and a half hour sessions and those were the quickest, but the longest would be about four hours. Okay. And we did every weekend too. It was incredibly intensive. Yeah. And I, I think about managing that schedule. I think first of all, at my own mental load around parenting and the things that I have to manage, but to imagine to add that 
to your plate. It must have been a lot. But in some ways, did you feel like it gave you something tangible to do, task-oriented to do to help him? Yes. It felt like I could do something. You know, I hired, I fired, I did the (laughs) payroll. I did, unfortunately, you know, I did all of these things. um, And it was something that I could accomplish. Yeah. Um, Felt as good as any of this can feel. You felt like you could do your job and do it well. Yes, exactly. So around this time, what was going on with you socially? Did you have friends that you spent time with? Did you get out much? How, where were you at emotionally? I was not in a good place emotionally. Um, I have very good friends, but my, my friends, my close friends were those um, like older friends from high school, from college who don't live locally. Um, somehow it was safer to confide in them because they weren't local. I had a very hard time. I sort of isolated myself from my local friends um, at that point because I just, it was too painful. I couldn't get together with them with the kids. A, he had ABA, so it wouldn't work schedule-wise. And B, I would feel really bad comparing him to their children and watching you know, a typically developing child and feeling really devastated about my own. So did you stay away from playgrounds and all kids zones where you might encounter other kids his age? I mean, we occasionally, we went to playgrounds a little, but we didn't usually go with people. So we didn't, um, you know, at that point, he didn't really have neighborhood friends because he was still so young. Mm -hmm. And we spent all his time in ABA. So we didn't really have a lot of friends. We had just moved to our neighborhood, to the house that you had seen. Um, So I just really didn't make a lot of friends at that point with kids the same age. I just had no interest. I couldn't do it. So I, I imagine it was hard to just explain what was going on in your life to your friends and even to your extended family, anyone else. And you have always avoided a diagnosis. So how would you explain what your life looked like if you had talked to an old friend during this time? I have very good old friends with whom I'm very close. So for them, I could explain it. Okay. Um, Even without a diagnosis, I told them he wasn't talking. I told them he still had no sounds. I told them he had all of these delays and there's this home program that would help him across all of these different domains to develop these skill sets. Okay. So that's what I did. And they were, of course, incredibly loving and supportive. So that's how I explained it. But so it was easier to to rely on the network of people that you felt comfortable with and exactly. that you could really trust rather than building new mom friends with same yeah, age kids. Yeah, I really wasn't ready at that point to build new mom friends. Because also, you know, when you, build, when you make mom friends, it's because your kids play together. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. when he was two or three years old, not playing with other kids, not going to school yet, there was no opportunity for that, which in a way made my life easier because it wasn't something I had to contend with at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about avoiding a diagnosis and how you've never really felt like you wanted to put a label on him. What are your thoughts about that? You know, I will never forget a speech therapist who saw him when he was two years old, looked me in the eye and said to me, he is never going to talk 
and you need to plan for a group home. And I fired her on the spot and spent a long time crying after that. But he has proven her wrong on both counts. I mean, the kid never stops talking (laughs) and he's not going to end up in a group home. And I realized that there's so much that we still don't know. And for us, a diagnosis wasn't critical because we weren't pursuing any public assistance. We weren't receiving, you know, public, you know, we weren't getting an IEP because he was always in private school. We were doing private therapies, not public therapies. Well, and at this point, ABI was not covered by any insurance. not covered. And it is now though, by many, right? Which is amazing. Yes. So a lot has happened since, which is so important and so wonderful. We were not so lucky. So (laughs) we paid every dime out of pocket and it, it was incredibly difficult. Um, We were still relatively early on in our careers. So that was a huge, huge challenge for us. But that's, you know, there was never any doubt in our minds that our money was to be used for our children. That was it. That, you know, we were very aligned on that point. So I remember my early days, I was one of your first therapists and the very early days, the first training that we did with a consultant learning what we were going to be doing, how exactly we were going to be teaching him to talk and to play. And he made incredible progress. (laughs) I mean, would you, do you remember it that way? Or is that just how I I remember in my mind? I do. He did. It was absolutely, we always say ABA saved his life. It, It did. And he loved it, by the way. Yeah, and we loved him, and we still do, of course. <laughs> oh, we loved you and still do. So. That, yeah, and I think that when it was really rewarding to me to come and to do that work because I could see every single day, I could see the progress that he was making. And I, I actually, I've heard in recent years that there are people, even though, I mean, there is a giant book full of treatments for kids with developmental delays and ABA is just one of many. Um, but there's people who are critical of ABA who say that it um, sort of forces kids to change into something that they're not naturally supposed to be. Have you heard any of this criticism? Oh, yeah. What do you definitely. think about that? I don't agree. <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay. I think it's a great thing. I mean, you know, I think my goal has never been to change who my son is. My goal is to position him to be as much as he can be. ABA hasn't changed him, but it taught him skills And it gave him confidence because confidence comes, in my view, from competence and from skill development. So developing oneself can only be a good thing, in my mind. If he hadn't had ABA, I cannot imagine what would have happened. I don't want to imagine it. But trust me, he's very much himself, (laughs) for better or worse. (laughs) Um, He is not a robot. He's not, you know, there's no evidence just in in raising him that it had any sort of, you know, adverse effect. And it wasn't punitive. There was nothing, like, abusive about it. He loved it. It was, as you recall, completely based on positive reinforcement. Right. And lots of play. It was lots of play. 100% play based. Yes. So it's been good. 
or it was good. Yeah. Once you started seeing the progress, did you start to feel better about everything? I mean, yes. So that's an interesting question. Yes, of course, because you, that's exactly what you want to happen. But as kids get older, the gap still widens, as you know. So it was a little hard. It's been hard over the years to think, okay, we're investing everything we have. And, you know, he's working so hard and he is making progress, but will he ever get to where we want him to be? You know, what is his potential? How well awful this make him? Yeah. You know? Is he going to reach the idealizations that you right. had way back exactly. in pregnancy? That's exactly right. So ultimately our expectations were never met and won't be met, but yeah, I mean, progress is so important and I think it's important, you know, it's helped us sort of reconceptualize what all this is for and what our goals for him should be and who he actually is and not whom we sort of imagined that he would be. Yeah. And so you did ABA with this consultant. I got married and then I left shortly afterward, after, and, but you moved on to another consultant after I left, right? We did. And for that, I just, I wanted a different perspective. I think the first consultant was very good, but I think we sort of outgrew her a little bit. So okay. I wanted to do a little bit more to have a program that was a little more natural. So we uh, employed a consultant who's actually, the reason we hired her is that she's a speech therapist and ABA trained consultant. And I liked that combination. Mm -hmm. She had background in both disciplines. So we embarked on a verbal behavior program, which is very similar to ABA, but a little bit more, with a little more emphasis on generalizing the skills to a more natural environment. So we did that and a lot of our instruct instructors just continued with us, but got trained by her in, in VB. Okay. So um, we did that and then he graduated. She said, he's done. He's like met all the goals. It was amazing. So the goal of ABA in many ways is to start early around two, yeah. no later than three, and then get kids quote unquote caught up so that they can go to kindergarten and be on track with their peers. Yes. Right. So how did that all pan out once he graduated from ABA? So it, for the most part went okay. Kindergarten, he went to a mainstream, small private school. He had a shadow that we hired and we were still actually working with the VB consultant at the time. So she came and sort of, she trained the shadow. She met with the teachers and stuff and, and he did very well. I mean, he, he had no academic problems at that point to the extent kindergarten has any academics, but um, he could, he was reading, he, he was fine. Um, our concerns at that point were more social, but the shadow was there to, sort of help him along with that. And he made a, a friend, a little girl who's just so sweet. So, you know, the kids were nice to him and he, he was happy. Um, first grade was harder because the academic demands got greater. And at that point, we realized there were some learning challenges that we had not been aware of. I mean, I remember in kindergarten, he read a book to his class and everyone thought he was such a genius because he could decode very well. And then in first grade, we left mid-year 
because the teachers felt they couldn't meet his academic needs. He had a lot of trouble with reading comprehension and okay. still does to this day. It's his biggest challenge academically. So we sent him to a more specialized school at that point and for the next few years. Um, so, you know, he, he wasn't all caught up. I think ABA dealt with a lot of the early, um, early skills that you hope children develop and the play skills and the, you know, some expressive and receptive language skills. Um, but it didn't address the academic needs. And quite frankly, it couldn't have anyway, because it wouldn't have been developmentally appropriate at that age. Yeah. So I just realized that we missed a very big life event, which was the birth of your daughters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's rewind. Okay. Now, I'm thinking about when you talked about the consultant taking you to Toys R Us and telling you buy this, buy that, and to get all the right toys mm -hmm. to have for him to be prepared. And she also told you to have a sibling, right? Uh, yes, they were basically <laughs> conceived that night because there was nothing we wouldn't do, you know, when we were told by her. What, what we did were, she tell you? What was the rationale like, for that? He needs to get pregnant immediately. He needs a sibling. <laughs> for said, social oh, reasons. Okay. Is that for social reasons? Okay. He needs a peer model, even though they'll be younger. She, well, it will be younger. We didn't know it would be twins. That was sort of a shock. Um, so... Really? I think my, my husband came home that night. I'm like, guess what? <laughs> Let's go. Um, and I got pregnant immediately and it was twins, twin girls. Had you had reservations? It sounds like before going on to get pregnant for the second time. Definitely. I, I, I remember thinking this was so impossible. I'm not sure I can go through the whole thing again. Yeah, <laughs> quite frankly, but I knew I wanted more than one child and I knew I wanted at least one sibling for him. Yeah. So we knew we would have another one, but you know, we, we didn't, we weren't actively thinking about it at that time. Our girls were born just, just after he had turned three. Okay. So it's not like we waited that long. Um, but but you got a little push. Yeah, we got a big push. Yeah. Exactly. So what was that like introducing twins into your already full schedule? To be perfectly honest, I have blocked that their first year out completely. I do remember thinking um, that even with twins, it was easier and more natural than it was had been with just one. Hmm. I remember feeling incredibly connected to the girls. Um, I remember feeling calmer with the girls and they were frankly easier, even though there were two of them. Yeah. Um, so they were sort of, you know, a blessing from minute one. <laughs> um, and he, he was still full-time in his ABA program. So it didn't really, they didn't really mess with his schedule. And at that point we hired a full-time nanny to help with the girls because I didn't want him, I didn't want his schedule or his life to be complete upheaval. So even though I was home, I was very busy sort of with, with all three, but we had help. Um, and the nanny really just helped with the girls. Yeah. I was still available for all of his stuff. 
Yeah. And it still was taking a lot out of you. It was kind of like your full-time job, I imagine. It was completely. And I remember thinking, God, I really have no idea how I'm ever going to work again, but I really want to work. I have always loved work. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I struggled a lot with those questions as well. You know, when to go back and what to do. I knew I wouldn't go back to a law firm, but I wasn't sure of, uh, of what to do. So I struggled for a while with that. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about, I was just about to ask you if you had made any other friends who were special needs moms and thinking about that expression, do you feel like there's a difference between calling someone a special needs mom and saying that you have a special needs child, sort of attaching that label to yourself? Do you, how do you feel about that? I mean, I actually say I have a child with special needs, <laughs> I yeah. but I don't know. I, I don't really get sensitive about that. Um, although I do think being a mother of one of these children is truly an identity. It just is. It changes you in really profound ways. So I understand when people say special needs moms, because um, it really is a shift in, in your identity in a just a really big way. Right. But I don't, I don't get I don't really care what people say. <laughs> yeah. And I think I that if you, anytime you group yourself in one way or another, I think in some ways it could limit your, limit your potential to grow in other areas. If you, mm -hmm. if you put all these labels on yourself and I know that right. you're, you're not a fan of all these labels. So I kind I'm of not. like the idea of not defining yourself by who your children are and the way that they're growing and yeah. their abilities. And it's just tough. I think ultimately you've got to find people who are your people and whether that's people who are in the same exact boat as you or not, that's such a personal thing and it will be different for everyone. I, I have made really, I'm so lucky. I have truly wonderful friends from sort of all different chapters of my life. And, um, some have kids with some issues and some don't. And it's really not about that. It, it, you know, our friendship sort of transcends all of that. And it's very important. I think the real thing is finding people who love you, who accept you, who support you, who want the best for you and your children, um, and whom you trust not to judge. I think that's incredibly key. Right. So that it sounds like you found a lot of value in your outside relationships, but tell me a little bit about the relationships inside your home. Like, what is it like managing? I mean, managing sibling relationships is hard period, <laughs> but what about the, managing the relationships between your kids? That is a, a really, it's a sensitive thing. It's really hard because, you know, at this point, our girls, um, have sort of surpassed our son academically. I mean, they are both, uh, doing very well in school. They have no sort of academic challenges to speak of, at least not at this point. Um, I remember recently the girls are reading the same, a book that they love. And then our son brought home the same book. So they're all reading the same book in school. I mean, is how he aware of that? Oh, yes. Okay. And he struggles to understand any of it. And our girls flew through it and loved it. And it's so hard. I read with him at night to try to help him with the book. 
and our girls are there like, oh, we love that part. And it's so like, I, you know, it's, it's a real challenge. And then what happens is he tries to, I guess, compensate for that by being kind of obnoxious to them. And I get it psychologically. He wants to have some power over them because they have a lot over him. Um, and that doesn't do much for the relationship. So it's, it is not easy. Um, mm -hmm. Ultimately, of course, they all love each other. They are, for the most part, good to each other. But it's definitely something we're mindful of. And that is a source of uh, challenge <laughs> at times. I imagine it has to be hard to want to praise them and to recognize their growth and achievement, but at the same time, not making him feel any less about his. It's really hard. And I, you know, I think that's even in the case of neurotypical children, you know, you want to honor and praise each child for his or her accomplishments. Um, without hurting someone else's feelings, but you also want to teach your kids that it's okay to be happy for your sibling and it's not a slight against you. Right. Your sibling did something great. So <laughs> it's really, I mean, it's a lot, there are a lot of dynamics to balance for sure. Yeah. So have you continued other types of therapies as he's been growing? Yeah. So right now we do speech therapy really for social pragmatics. Um, he has a reading tutor, which isn't really therapeutic, but it's certainly what he needs. He does, I don't know if this would be considered ther uh, therapeutic, but he does a one-on-one -on -one, um, fitness program every week with a trainer who designs a program especially for him to develop his core strength and motor planning skills and things of that nature. Um, he's not a natural athlete, so. Right, and you're not trying to make him into an Olympic yeah, athlete by any absolutely means. Absolutely <laughs> not. So you've had your experience in hiring and firing therapists of all different disciplines over yeah. the years. Do you have any advice for finding the right therapist and knowing when to let go, even if it's against their recommendations? That's such a great question. Um, a lot of it is about you know, doing your research, word of mouth, but also trusting your gut. We have, we have really, you know, a lot of times, particularly with therapists, it's really all about fit. So we had people that we've had to fire who were probably just fine at their jobs, but they didn't do well with our son or he didn't do well with them, I should say. And you know, you sort of have to just stay involved with your eyes and ears wide open and be willing to be flexible. It's flexibility is the one thing I have learned more than anything. I was not flexible before because everything in my life had always gone according to plan. And I felt, okay, if I work hard enough, there is nothing I cannot accomplish. And when I say parenting has been humbling, that's what I'm talking about because for the first time, you know, raising our son has forced me to be completely flexible and to try things. And when one thing doesn't work, we're not afraid to make a change. And in fact, we look at that as our job. 
So a lot of it is really just looking at fit, looking at progress, looking at personality. You know, if you can't stand a person, you don't want them working with your child, right? It's just, we fired ABA instructors on the first day. <laughs> Do you know that? I, I remember that. Yeah. Oh, that was brutal. <laughs> Cause I was listening with a monitor and she was not following any of what she was supposed to do. So I fired her on the break. I sent her home. Um, without apology. I mean, there's just no time or money to waste. Yeah. Uh, so that I view as, as our role really. I think it's really easy once you're in the flow with something like this to just keep going. Well, (laughs) I mean, it's it's hard hard to let go because you know, you're going to have to find somebody else and you're and it's awkward, right? Yeah. I mean, you kind of have to just get over it though. It's like you're doing this for your kid. And if your kid isn't going to benefit, there is just no point in, in employing the person. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty uh, ruthless about it. <laughs> well, you've well, had, pra- you've had practice. Really, we have so few now, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't apologize. You feel bad, I guess, but it's, you know, life's too short. There was, yeah. I never, I always felt such an urgency to help him that it, it really was sort of a no brainer to me, honestly. Yeah. And do you feel like that sense of urgency has faded over the years? Oh, what a good question. Um, We've settled into the resignation that there are things that are just really hard for him. So there's no sort of acute urgency anymore because we know what we're dealing with and we've been at it for a really long time. So in that sense, the urgency has dissipated a little bit. But the motivation to help him and to get him whatever resources he needs has not dissipated at all. I would put it that way. Yeah. So you're still, it's still your part-time job to make sure that he, his needs are being well-served and that all of your kids are being, all of our kids. Yeah. It's sort of no different for him now than for my girls. It's like, I, I, that is my most important job, but it takes less time now, you know, now that they're all sort of situated in school and things just sort of go at their pace. How has going back to work impacted your mental health? It has done great things for my mental health. (laughs) Um, You know, I absolutely love what I do. And I love feeling, I've thought about this a lot. I love feeling like I'm using my education and my training and degree and everything else. But I also love feeling that I'm making an impact on students' lives. Because there have been times, many times throughout our son's life, that I've felt that I'm not having enough of an impact um, or that I felt guilty about not being able to help him in the ways I want to. Um, And I don't have that experience at work. I love connecting with my students. I love advising them. I love reaching them. And it's something that I do very well. 
Um, and I feel tremendously fulfilled being able to do that. It makes me feel useful and effective. Yeah. And I, that sounds like something that you have always strived to do in your family life too, but always. it's not, it's, it's harder to do. In and it's harder to family. engage. How do you know you're yeah. doing a good job? All parents feel like they're doing a bad job. Right? <laughs> yes, totally. So, I think I mean, that's like a rule of parenting. You feel like you're just no good at it. So, um, it's much harder to tell. I think it's a longer term proposition and who knows, <laughs> who knows how we're doing, but right. at work it's different. And I get the feedback right away and I, I get told, you know, I get evaluated. It's just, it's, it's very good for me. Yeah. So if you could go back, rewind 10 to 12 years ago and write a letter to yourself, what kind of mm -hmm. things would you tell yourself to do differently or to feel differently or there, would you tell yourself to make any changes? That's a really, really good question. You know, I think the most important thing I would tell myself is that it's okay to feel how I'm feeling because I, you know, I've struggled. I struggled for years thinking I was not a good mother because of how I felt because I felt distraught about him because I felt that he was hard to play with, which by the way, he was like, that's just factual. But I felt guilty about it because I felt that I should really want to play with him and that I should, it should be my joy to play with him even though he couldn't play. Um, I felt terribly guilty that I, about my feelings, basically. And I equated those feelings to being a bad mother. And in actuality, I don't think I've been such a bad mother because I provided everything I possibly could always to him. Um, and ultimately we have a very healthy attachment you know, which is what it's about. I always loved holding him. I wanted to be the one to comfort him. I felt overwhelming love for him. I just didn't love spending all the time because I felt like it was sort of boring and difficult at the same time. And for years, that feeling really ate away at me and made me feel like a bad mom. And I would have been spared a ton of sadness had I not taken that leap, you know, and, yeah. and felt that way. So I think that's what I would tell my old self, that whatever I was feeling was totally okay and was totally valid and normal and didn't make me a bad mom. Because that's what I've struggled most with, that guilt. And I don't think that you're alone in that guilt either. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of parents out there who don't enjoy the time that they're spending with their kids as much as they think that they should. <laughs> and I, I think that's a real a real concern for parents everywhere. And the reality is I don't think we're ever going to enjoy 
every minute that we're spending with our kids. And our kids, the, the way that they think and the way that they spend their time is very different from the way that we think and spend our time. And in many ways, we have to accommodate them constantly when we spend yeah. time with them. And it's, it is exhausting. And it it's is exhausting. kind of mind numbing. It is. And, you know, but when they're not typically developing, there's even more importance placed on that time because you think, I need to spend my time with him in productive ways. Right. And if I don't, it's going to make things worse. That sense of urgency, sense of feeling yeah. like you needed to fix it. I needed to fix it. I wasn't able to fix it. And therefore, I wasn't doing what a good mother would have done. Yeah. And that was not fair to myself. <laughs> um, and I have learned with the help of a therapist and, you know, many years of sort of coming to terms with all of this, that that was faulty reasoning. Um, but that's, I think, the biggest, the biggest lesson I would have um, imparted to my, my younger self. Well, I think that you're a fantastic mother and wow. I feel so yeah. lucky to have been able to have a front row seat to your early years of mothering <laughs> and seeing you just literally work your butt off for your, your kids you to do amazing. the best for them. And wow. I've, I've never seen anything like it, which is why I felt like I wanted to talk to you about this and know what exactly was going on in your head and how overwhelming this must have been for you. It was, I mean, you know, Speaking of the guilt, it was it was hard. You know, when you guys all came to play with him, you seemed so happy to be there and you loved him so much. It was so clear and he loved you and you were excited or at least you pretended to be excited about being there. And I felt incredible relief that I didn't have to do it because you were there. And yeah. then I felt guilty feeling so relieved. And I thought, God, these people who aren't even his parents love to be with him. What's wrong with me? Cause I don't, I didn't feel I had the energy for it. So, you know, <laughs> it was a really difficult, um, dynamic just in my head at, at the time because I was simultaneously relieved and grateful, of course, that you all were there and also felt like a failure in other ways because you guys had the strength for it. And I didn't feel that I did. I think that just is a reflection of the idea that we all need support and other people and we need relief and we need breaks because nobody is going to be able to be all on all day, every day. And the reason that the therapists like I were able to be there 100% and excited and happy was because, well, A, I didn't have children at home to suck the energy <laughs> out of me. I got myself up in the morning, put my own shoes on, put myself to bed at night. So I had a lot of extra energy. And I was also only doing it for a couple hours a day. And then I was going home, I got to leave. So yeah. I think that that allowed me to come with a different energy. And I think that if I was trying to do that job right now, it would probably be a, be a lot harder for me. <laughs> Just That's knowing that you're actually feel I, a do. <laughs> I really do think that I don't know if I could do it now. <laughs> well, I, I think you view as like superhuman. So if you can't, I think that. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. So the last thing I wanted to pick your brain about was you had told me that you gave up alcohol last year, which I did too. And I just want to hear more about your experience with that. Well, it's, I gave up a lot more than alcohol, but first of all, I did not have anything 
resembling a drinking problem before yeah. that. I, I, you know, I drank socially, like I would go out to dinner and have a glass of wine, which I, I would love now, but I don't do it. I gave up flour and sugar last year, which in, included alcohol. For and the whole year? For the whole year. And I, wow. I should, you know, I'm still in theory doing it, although <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't talk about that. Yeah. Um, so I didn't cope well uh, with all of the stress and I put on a ton of weight. I, you know, I got really heavy um, really over the last few years, but it was building over time um, because I would just binge and, you know, to sort of relieve my anxiety, which of course was ineffective, but it didn't stop me from doing it. Um, so I finally last January decided to uh, embark on this program that says <laughs> no flour, no sugar, no alcohol. Um, it was very tough and, and no snacking and you have to do portion control. I mean, it's really not fun, but it's given me a great sense of peace and control and I've lost a ton of weight and feel so much better. Um, so for me, alcohol was sort of the easy thing to give up because I didn't okay. drink a lot anyway. And, you know, really, I care more about food. <laughs> yeah. So that's been harder. Um, but it's all related in terms of, you know, misusing food or alcohol um, in ways that are harmful or at least not, you know, optimal in terms of your health and well-being. Yeah. Good. So I feel much better having done it. Um, I love to hear that. Yeah. I'm proud mm -hmm. of you too. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. And I'm so glad that you have been able to share the, all this with us. And like I said, I think so much of it is going to resonate with so many people who have either been in your shoes or know someone that's in your shoes and I hope want so. to have a little I more really... insight into all this. So thank yeah. you. No, I, it's my pleasure. I hope it can help someone. And, um, I just hope people know they're not alone and that whatever they are feeling is just a feeling. And it doesn't mean anything when it comes to their effectiveness as a parent. Oh, well, thank you for that. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. I hope you've enjoyed this story. And I'm so thankful to Jen for sharing her experiences with us. If you have questions or comments, you can leave those at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 198. And if you're interested in joining us in the mental unload next week, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash unload. I'd love to have you and get to know you better there. Thanks for tuning in and thank you for being a part of Simple Families. Have a good one.